Well, this morning, we are starting a new series in the book of James. In the book of James, and that, that's it's going to be on page 1011 of the Blue Provided Bibles, if you're looking around uh, trying to figure out where James is. It's towards the back of your Bible. Uh, you're going to see Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Um, but this series, it's, it's just a so we're not, we're not done with Exodus. So don't think, oh, okay, they got out of the, the Exodus, the exciting part of that book, and now they're heading into the wilderness where it's boring, and now they're just going to abandon it. That's not the case. We're, we're, we've come to a nice stopping point, and now, Lord willing, we're going to go through James probably up until about Easter, and then jump back into Exodus. And so I'm excited to dive into this book. And, and one of the primary reasons is because James is just so stinking practical. Many of you know that some, some books can be more theological, so to speak. And all of Scripture, of course, is theological. But some books are just a little bit more practical, boots on the ground. What do we do with this theology that we proclaim? And James does a really good job of, of connecting those dots for us. And so as we head into this new year, I think it'll be helpful for us to examine this book. Now, James, just to provide you some background context... James was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. I'm sure that was hard to guess. Um, Now, it was written probably around the mid-40s. So it's one of the earliest New Testament books written. Um, And so, I mean, it's around 10 years after Jesus' crucifixion, um, resurrection, and ascension. And um, according to Acts 15 and Acts 21, James was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So when he writes this letter, he's writing to predominantly Jewish Christians who, as he says, have been dispersed. Now, according to Acts 8, at least one of the reasons, it might not be all the reasons, but at least one of the reasons that this church was dispersed because, was because of intense persecution. Reading the first verse there of Acts 8, that the church was scattered or dispersed due to some of the persecution they were facing. And, and James, as he's writing to these Jewish Christians, he wants to connect for them faith and works. He focuses on the relationship between faith and works. In fact, of the 108 verses that are in the book of James, out of those 108 verses, there are 59 different commands So nearly half the book is filled with just commands. 108 verses, 59 different commands. Charles Spurgeon, talking about this book, he said that we believe that men are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. They are saved by faith without works, but not by a faith which is without works. To clarify even more, Warren Rearsby says that sinners are not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that works. Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, said that James, it will be remembered, is not arguing that a Christian must add works to faith. He insists that true saving faith will work. And Thomas Wilson, commenting on this, said that faith, just to clarify even more, faith is the root of works. A root that produces nothing is dead. Faith is the root of works. root that produces nothing is dead. And so the theme that we're going to consistently 
come back to throughout this book of James, the drum that we're going to consistently be beating, is that genuine faith works. Genuine faith works. And in light of the persecution that some of these Jewish Christians were facing, in light of some of the trials, some of the temptations that they were seeing, some were, fault, were failing to put their own faith into practice. They were claiming to be believers, but they were living like non-believers. So the question for us this morning, the question that James jumps right out to answer, is what does genuine faith do with trials and temptations? We said that genuine faith works. Now, what does genuine faith do with trials and temptations? Because, friends, there's an entire movement built on the notion that genuine faith, the sign of genuine faith, is that you are healthy, you are wealthy, and you are prosperous. This is known as the prosperity gospel, and I just want to say to you clearly, as can be, that that is not the true gospel. That is a false gospel. It is a cheap counterfeit, which conveniently ignores the biblical witness as well as church history. But there's an entire movement that gains followers every day that says that if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, and you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, and you will be prosperous. And right from the get-go, when James is trying to connect faith and works, the first thing that he talks about is the trials that a Christian is going to face and the temptations that they are going to see. And so if you're here today and you find yourself wondering why, why God would allow you to go through the troubles you're facing or allow someone you love to face the difficulties they've faced, then friends, God, through James, has something to say to you about that this morning. As we look at these 18 verses, I hope that we'll see very clearly that genuine faith question that James poses to us, what does genuine faith do with trials and temptations? Well, here it is. Genuine faith trusts that God uses trials and temptations to perfect his people. Genuine faith trusts that God uses trials and temptations to perfect his people. So let's read the first 18 verses here of the book of James. Here God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he is to the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Father, thank you for this section in James. Help us to be a people who remain steadfast in trial and temptation, and help us to count it all joy when we face these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, in your bulletin, you'll find four points. Those points I'm going to give to you on the front end are these. In verse 1, we see a servant. In verses 2 through 12, we see trials. Verses 13 through 15, temptation. And we see comfort in the last three verses there, 16 through 18. So a servant, trials, temptation, and comfort. Now, Beginning with that first one, a servant, it is so easy, especially as you read the New Testament and you see the various different greetings, it's so easy to overlook greetings. But I would encourage you, don't do that. Don't do that. Not, not with this one, at least. James 1.1, he says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus who was once a doubter. He didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. He grew up with Jesus, and he was not convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. We read in Mark 3 that even as his half-brother, Jesus' family thought that he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy, and they came to get him away from the crowds. This this guy, he's saying all kinds of things that, that we don't think are right and we don't want to bring ill repute to our name. So they thought he was crazy. And so they went out to, keep, to bring him home. In John 7, Jesus' brothers were essentially trying to get him to put up or shut up. And so they encouraged him to go to Judea, where, it just so happened, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. So they said, hey, look, a prophet doesn't do all this stuff in, in, in quiet. Go to where the crowds are. Go to Judea. Show them who you are. They were so annoyed with him that they essentially were like, hey, why don't you just go there and just settle this? Let us know one way or the other. Because they themselves did not believe him. But now, just shortly after Jesus' ministry, James calls his brother Lord. He calls him the Son of God. He calls him Christ. So he's calling him Master, he's calling him Messiah, and he equates his brother in doing that with God. So what changed? 
How did James go from being a doubter to being a believer? How did he go from thinking Jesus was absolutely crazy and needed to be brought off the streets and kind of kept safely in home to, I need to proclaim Jesus. I need to write this letter to these dispersed Christians to let them know that they need to hold fast to Jesus as the Messiah. How did he go from being a doubter to being one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a little bit of a clue. I'm just going to read a portion of that. If you're flipping there, it's, I'm starting in verse 3. But we read, Paul's writing to the, the church in Corinth, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then in verse 7 we read, Then he appeared to James. Jesus, who was dead, was buried, was resurrected, appeared to several people after he had died. One of them was James. And so after witnessing the rest of Jesus' ministry, James may have been convinced that Jesus was who he says he was, that he was the Son of God. But if there was any doubt, then after James sees Jesus with a resurrected and glorified body, after he saw Jesus die on a cross, and then later Jesus shows up to him, that probably dispelled the majority of any doubt that remained. He just saw his dead brother raised from the dead and appear to him. That was likely convincing. So James went from doubter to believer to leader of the Jerusalem church to, it doesn't even stop there, he eventually became a martyr. He was told to recant the faith, and he didn't, and it cost him his life. In fact, according to Eusebius, the church historian, the scribes and Pharisees knew that James was a leader. And so to get him to kind of stop proclaiming this gospel, they took him to the top of the temple, and they told him, all right, now proclaim to everybody below that you recant the faith, that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, that he is not the Son of God. Let everybody below know. And so as a crowd gathered, James up there used this opportunity to double down. And he proclaimed the gospel again. And so in response, the scribes and the Pharisees threw him off the temple. That didn't kill him. He was able to muster up enough strength from there to get on his knees, and he began to pray. And he asked God to forgive the scribes and Pharisees for what they were doing. And so they responded by stoning him. And yet even that did not kill him. And so one man with a club eventually walked over to James and finished the job. Friends, if there's anybody who would have reason to doubt Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as divine, it would be James. James grew up with him. He knew him better than everyone else. He witnessed his ministry. And James eventually not only became a believer, he became a leader in the Jerusalem church, and then he died for that faith. He was unwilling to recant it because he just couldn't. And so now James, who was very skeptical of Jesus, became so utterly convinced that it led to his death and now he is writing to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. 
And the, the phrase there to the 12 tribes just refers to Jewish people. And dispersion there, as we mentioned, could be various things. See that clue in, in Acts 8. But these Jewish Christians who, had, who were dis- dispersed. And so James is trying to help these dispersed Christians who are experiencing persecution. He's trying to help them to stay steadfast. Hold on to the faith. Don't let go. James went from adamantly denying Jesus to willingly dying for him. And so if you are in the room today and you're unsure that Jesus is who he says he is, then I would just encourage you that you're not in bad company. James felt the same way. But look closely at his life and ask yourself, if James, who knew Jesus better than anyone else, really ended up coming to belief that he is who he says he was, and then he's faced with the opportunity to recant or to die, would James, if there was any shred of doubt, would James willingly give up his life the way that he did? Consider James. And then friends, continue to seek truth. If you're unsure of who Jesus is, read good books. There are, there are books that, in the back that you can utilize. Can we trust the Bible? Who is Jesus? Those are a couple of them. There's a, a good a book that uh, I don't think is back there, but I encourage you to check it out. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. These are good books that you can look into that will just help you find out what the Bible says and if it stands up to the tests that the world likes to throw at it. And so now moving on to verses 2 through 12, we see trials. And so there's a few things that we need to know about trials. So the first thing is this, and it's in verse 2, that trials will come. James doesn't say if you meet trials. He says when you meet trials. So they're coming. We just need to know that. I heard somebody say one time that you're either um, coming out of a trial, in the midst of a trial, or you're heading into a trial. It's one of those three things at any point in your life. Trials will come. And he says there'll be various kinds. There'll be various kinds of trials. There's health trials, work trials, family trials, financial trials, big trials, small trials. So Christian, don't be surprised when you experience trials. Instead, count it all joy when they come. And that's, that's, a, that's a crazy thing to say if you just think about it. I'm going through a trial. How am I supposed to find joy in that? How am I supposed to count that joy? Well, one commentary puts it this way. It says, count it all joy is a command. It's an imperative. And it's a verb that addresses how we think, which is important. This is not about feeling. Trials don't necessarily bring a smile to our faces. This is not simply about putting on a happy face and pretending everything is okay. It goes on, it says, we need to realize that trials are not joyful in and of themselves. But they are joyful, and here's the key, when we realize they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through them. So what exactly are his purposes? If he's accomplishing his purposes through our trials, what are those purposes? Well, it leads us to the second thing that we need to know about trials, and that's that trials make us more like Christ. They make us more like Christ. See that in verses 3 through 4. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, God has designed trials to help us grow in godliness. In fact, trials force growth in ways that other seasons of life just simply would not produce. Trials force that growth that we wouldn't experience otherwise. And so, friends, if our goal is to know God, if that's our goal, know God, and if our goal in in light of that is to grow in Christ's likeness, then we can take joy when we go through trials because we know that those trials are pushing us toward that goal, to know God more, to grow in Christ's likeness, because God uses those trials to help us experience growth that we otherwise wouldn't have experienced. And so if your ultimate goal is comfort, then when you go through trials, you're not going to find joy because your comfort is being challenged. But if your ultimate goal is to know God and to grow in Christ's likeness, then you can take joy in the trial because the trial is pushing you inches closer and closer to knowing God and growing in Christ's likeness. Third thing, trials require wisdom. See that in verses 5 through 8. So James just, just recognizes, hey, look, you're going to need to grow in this. These are not going to be easy. So if any of you lacks wisdom, because we need wisdom in trials, then ask. Ask God for it. The, the Greek word trial there can be translated as trial or as test. And so trials, to put it simply, are tests that challenge faith. Trials are tests that challenge faith. And so if trials are the testing of our faith, then having wisdom is invaluable for passing the test or making it through the trial with our faith intact. And so if we lack that wisdom, then friends, we are commanded to ask God for it. He is not annoyed when you ask him for things. He is a loving father who wants to generously and does generously give to us. But we must ask for it. And there's a certain way we're commanded to ask. If we look at verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Friends, to doubt that you'll receive wisdom from God and then simultaneously go to him and ask for wisdom is nonsensical. It's like, wanting to get a new vehicle and going through the McDonald's drive-thru and asking for one. It's like needing groceries and going to Home Depot or needing some dental work done and heading over to Ikea. Look, if you doubt that wisdom is found with God, then it makes no sense to ask him for it. God says that someone who does that sort of thing, I just love the honesty of the Bible here, Someone who does that sort of thing is double-minded and unstable. That guy is unstable. He doesn't think that he's going to get this thing, but for some reason he keeps going here. That dude needs groceries and he keeps going to Home Depot. That person's unstable. I don't get it. God says, look, don't ask for wisdom if you don't think you're going to get it. He's the God of wisdom. He wants to give it generously. He wants to give it freely to all those who would ask, but you have to ask. Ask in faith. There are three things that increase wisdom. One commentary points this out. There are three things that increase wisdom. Knowledge, perspective, and experience. Knowledge, perspective, and experience. 
Friends, trials reveal to us that we are lacking in all three of those things. However, God possesses all knowledge. God has an eternal perspective. And in Christ, God has experienced every kind of test and has prevailed. Trials require wisdom. And the place to go for that wisdom is the God with whom all wisdom resides. The God who freely and generously gives to all who ask him for that wisdom. And so whenever your faith is being tested by circumstances, or whenever you have questions or frustrations about something you're going through, or you're confused about why God would allow this particular thing to happen, or anything else, ask God for wisdom. God, I am frustrated. Help me understand. Grant me wisdom to know why you are doing what you're doing. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And friends, ask often. It's a humble thing to consistently go back to God and ask him for these things over and over and over again. He's not going to be annoyed by it. It's you showing your humility and your need for him. So trials will come. Trials make us more like Christ. Trials require wisdom. The fourth thing, trials remind us of where our hope should be. So we see in verse 9 where James addresses the lowly brother, and then in verse 10 he addresses the rich. And so what we see is that both poverty and wealth bring great temptation. Great temptation to fix our eyes on the world rather than on Christ. And so the poor should be reminded of their exaltation, of the immeasurable riches that they have in Christ. And the wealthy should be reminded of their humiliation, that their wealth cannot protect them from a fallen world. Even the rich get sick. Even the rich lose loved ones. Even the rich experience trials. So the rich should be reminded, the wealthy should be reminded, that their wealth cannot protect them from this fallen world. Additionally, their wealth is temporary. And it provides them zero advantage with God. Despite what that prosperity gospel movement would say, their wealth provides them zero advantage with God. And so whether rich or poor, we will all stand before God and we will all stand before him equally in need of a savior. Warren Buffett, one of the world's wealthiest men, every year, it's not just a one-time thing, but every year donates $1.5 billion to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And one year, when asked about his philanthropic efforts and his consistency to donate this exorbitant kind of money to this charity, he says this. He says, look, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. More than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Guys, Warren Buffett is just wrong. There is only one way. Warren Buffett's money does not help him in any way get to heaven. In fact, him and Jesus would have some serious disagreements because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, including you, Warren Buffett, no one comes to the Father except 
through me. And the apostles continued to teach us. We see it in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No amount of wealth accumulated or given away can purchase your forgiveness. And no amount of poverty entitles you to God's wealth. Friends, trials remind each of us that money cannot solve our problems, that material possessions can't cover our pain, and that our hope must be on Christ. Everything else, be it much or little, will, friends, ultimately fail us. And the fifth thing that we see is that trials promise a final reward. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, trials remind us that sin and death are all around us. Every time we go through a trial, we are reminded that sin has impacted this fallen world. Sin is the reason this world has fallen, and we experience pain and trials because of sin. And we're reminded that the wages of sin is death, and we see death around us. Trials remind us of that. But... In Christ, sin is eradicated. In Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we will receive the crown of life. Athletes in that day, when they would win an athletic competition, would be given a crown. It was a a wreath crowning them as the victor. Friends, not because of your works, but because of what Christ has done. If you place your faith in him and your faith remains steadfast in the midst of all of these trials and temptations, then you too will receive a victor's crown. And you will be treated as a victor. But it's not because of what you've done. It's because your faith has been tethered to the one who was victorious on your behalf. And so Christian, each time you face a trial, let that trial serve as a reminder. Let it serve as a reminder of the reward that awaits you on the other side of that trial. So in summary of the second point, and this is the longest point, but in summary, trials will come. They make us more like Christ. They require wisdom. They remind us of where our hope is, and they promise us a reward. But wisdom, hope, and reward are found only in Christ. But with every trial comes temptation. Which leads us to our third point. So what do we need to know about temptation? Well, verse 13, we see that temptation is not from God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God uses your temptations, yes, but they do not originate from God. They're not from him. James says that God can't be tempted and tempts no one. He's perfectly holy. So the idea of him trying to tempt one of us with sin just does not work. The second thing we need to know about temptation is that temptation comes from our own desires. We've been affected by sin ever since it came into the world. And so therefore, our desires are naturally sinful. James says in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Which this, I'm going to like kind of take a step over here. This speaks to those free will debates 
that a lot of us like to jump into. Nearly every, I shouldn't say every, but many Christians eventually come to this question, is there free will? Does mankind have free will or not? Well, nearly every reliable theologian would say yes. Humanity does have free will. However, it depends on how you define free will. Are we free to do whatever we want? No. Our abilities prohibit that. I could want to fly like a bird, but if I climb to the top of my house and jump off, it's just not going to go well for me. The ability isn't there. Are we free from outside influences acting upon our decisions? No. I, like many of you, wore a coat today because the weather outside influenced what I was going to wear. However, what I've found to be the best definition of free will is the ability to do what we most desire. There's desire and ability. It's the ability to do what we most desire. When the desire for sin is there, and when the desire to fulfill that sin, and when the ability to fulfill that sin is there, that's when temptation is born. The desire for sin, the ability to fulfill that desire leads to temptation. And when we act on that temptation, it brings death, which is the third thing we need to know about temptation. Again, the wages of sin is death. Friends, sin never delivers on its promises. It promises life and life abundantly, but it only brings death. It presents the bait. Many of you know I like to fish. It presents the bait but it hides the hook. No decent fisherman is going to just throw a hook out there and hope a fish bites it. You put the bait on, you hide that hook, and then you present the bait in an enticing way to the fish. It's like, maybe you guys don't like fishing or you're not a fisherman, but maybe you have email. It's like that Nigerian prince who keeps emailing you, telling you that there is a small fortune that he will give you if you would just help him transfer some funds. Just give him your bank account and he will provide you with that fortune. Presents it in an enticing way, but he hides the fact that he's going to bankrupt you. Christian, fight against sin. Do not believe its lies because sin comes from our own desires, and we are naturally fallen. And so because of that, we have to consider what stirs godly desires in us, and we need to increase those things. And then we need to consider what is it that leads us to temptation? What are some maybe shows or people I hang out with or activities that I do that lead to temptation? We need to minimize or remove those things. And so outwardly, trials will come. Inwardly, temptations will also come. And the only way we'll make it through each is if we're relying on someone stronger than ourselves. The only way our desires are going to change is if God changes them. So I say that you're dead in sin. God changes our stone heart, our heart of stone, to a heart of flesh and gives us new desires. And then he equips us by his Holy Spirit to have the ability to walk in those new desires desires. Friends, if you're wrestling with temptation, then call on God and ask him to change your desires. Beg him, God, 
I desire this thing. I know this is sinful. Change that in me. Give me wisdom as to how to live in a way that, that minimizes those desires, but please remove that desire and replace it with desires for you. Jesus faced both trials and temptations, and he faced them on our behalf. And he is the only one, friends, capable of consistently seeing us through both of those things, trials and temptations, which leads us to the final three verses where we see comfort. Now, we are comforted. This might seem strange, but follow me. We're comforted by the fact that God does not change. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Why is it comforting that God does not change? Well, it's because he's perfect. In fact, if he's perfect, then any change would require him to become imperfect. And that's comforting for so many reasons. I'll offer a couple. So first, it's comforting because what we've just covered about trials and temptations, that is true always. It's not that years ago God would use trials for the good of his people, but today it's a different story. It's not that years ago God would help us in our temptation, but today he's kind of absent. No, he hasn't changed. Both of those things are to draw us closer to him. Second, it's, it's comforting because what is secured for us in Christ, that never changes. God's favor, his love, his affection, his commitment to our good, all of those never change. If you are in Christ, then when God looks down on you, he sees Christ's perfection and all of the affections that he has for Jesus are attributed to you. The good that he would have for his son is given to you. Everything that Christ has secured is given to you. And that does not change. Even if you failed today, even if you sinned horribly yesterday, God's affection to you has not changed. The fact that God does not change is so comforting for those of us who face temptation. We're tempted oftentimes to believe that when we fail, God is frustrated or angry with us. But friends, we are told here that with God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He, said, he says he's the God of lights. I mean, I mean think, think of a bright light, and you stick your hand under that light. You see the shadow. And as you move your hand, you see that the shadows change, right? But we read here that there is no shadow due to change with God. He has stayed the same. No matter what we have done, no matter what goes on around us, God does not change. If he was 100% for you prior to today, then he is 100% for you today and every day hereafter, despite your sin. But because you have called on the perfect one, Christ, who lived a perfect life on your behalf, and so all of the rewards that he has earned are yours if you are calling on him. We're also comforted by the means of our salvation. So look, God saving us is not conditional on our own actions. James says that he, God, brought us forth of his own will. He saved us of his own will. 
He's not forced or coerced by anyone. Psalm 115 says that God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Nobody forces him to do anything, not even our own actions. It's not that God is working with the best that he has. I've given them free will, and so now I've got to do the best that I can with what they're doing. No, God does all that he desires, including give us new desires to follow him. But we also see that God brought us forth by the word of truth. So it's not by these Jewish Christians' word. It's not by our word. It's not by the word of others, but it's by God's word. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. Friends, this is why every week we go back to the word. This is why we encourage you, don't just keep the word here. Wherever you go, as, as, as Ben even said in the Assurance of Grace, wherever you go, have opportunities to talk about the faith that you have and point people back to God's word because he brought us forth by the word of truth. Friends, we are not saved by our impeccable track record in the midst of trials and temptations. We're saved by the will of God. We're saved through faith in the word of God so that we would be made more perfectly into the image of God. Martin Luther, talking about trials and temptations, he said that no man without trials and temptations can attain a true understanding of the Holy Scriptures. No man can attain a true understanding of the Holy Scriptures without trials and temptations. View your trials and temptations as good gifts from God who does not change, who's continuously using them for your good. James, like every other Christian who's ever existed, is a servant of God, but he is an imperfect servant. But he worshiped the only perfect servant of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced countless trials. Just to name a few, he was slandered, he was mocked, he experienced poverty, he was lied to, he was hated, he was disowned, friends failed him, he had family strife, he had loved ones die, he was betrayed, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was abandoned, and he was murdered. Jesus experienced trials. And Jesus experienced temptation. And he experienced it in every way that we do. Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus walked through each, a trial and temptation. He walked through each perfectly. And Jesus' perfect record is given to all of those who would call on his name, who would recognize their own imperfection in the midst of trials and temptations and call on the only perfect servant. And when you receive Jesus' perfection, God views you as perfect, just as Jesus is, and that does not change. So friends, genuine faith What does genuine faith do with trials and temptations? It trusts that God uses those trials and temptations to perfect his people. He wants to use them to point you to the perfect one so that your faith will be even more firmly rooted in that perfect one and that you would be perfected through that. So whether it's the pain of our trials or the sin of our temptations, God through Christ is saving us from both, from our trials and from our sin. Are you experiencing trials today? 
Trust God. Are you afflicted with temptation? Turn to God. Ask him for help. Don't believe the lies of sin. Instead, believe God's promises. And so Christian, whether it's trials or temptations, take comfort in these three things. One, that these are designed to bring you closer to God. He is using them to bring you closer to him. Two, that God doesn't change, which means he's still for you and he will not let you go. And three, that God has given himself to you for protection and for strength. So rely on him in the midst of those trials and temptations. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, consider whether now or later, maybe during the moment of reflection before the Lord's Supper, consider the possibility that God may be using your trials and temptations to bring you to faith in the perfect one so that you may be forever seen as perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who does not change. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that you use trials to perfect your people and that you are there to help your people in the midst of temptation. Help us to call on you more when we experience trials and when we go through temptations. Thank you for your son Jesus who did these things perfectly on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen.